Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina, who is accused of murdering his son Paul and his wife Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a multitude of alleged crimes including fraud and homicide. In our last episode, we concluded our review of the testimony of Murdoch family friend, Blanca Simpson. In this installment, we review the testimony of Belinda Rast, a private home healthcare provider who worked with Alex Murdoch's mother, Libby. We also begin our look at the testimony of FBI Special Agent Matthew Wilde. That's all coming up right after the break. 20-23, day 13 of the trial of Alex Murdoch. Our previous episode was the last of five installments covering the testimony of Blanca Simpson, a Murdoch family friend and employee. Today we begin our coverage as Belinda Rast takes the witness stand. Ms. Rast appears to be
and I think you just said can is kind of one job and has it evolved over time into being a more significant job? That's correct. <clears throat> Belinda, are you, uh, are you nervous being here today? I am. Would you say that you're, you've become fairly close to Miss Libby over these years? I have. She is, um, to me, she's family. She's like my family away from home. So you care about her? I do. All right. Um, well, Ms. Rast, tell me about what your typical hourly shift is. From 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. All right. And do you occasionally work weekends? I work every other weekend. And what would your hours be on the weekends? Um, from 7 p. to 7 to 8 a.m. in the morning or 9. Okay. nine so, so for weekdays, it's typically 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. Is that correct? Correct. And how long have you been working there again at, at Almeda? Um, well, I've already been there for this year would be my fifth year. Were you employed during the uh, year 2021, June of 2021? I was. All right. On, uh, do you remember the day June 7th of 2021? June 7th? Yeah. Um, that was the day I was called and, and told to come to the house that they wanted to tell me something. Were you supposed to work that day? Were you scheduled to work that day? I was. All right. What happened? Why were you not on duty that day? Well, one of the other employees wanted to be all, and I um, switched with her, Miss Shelley. Um, she had more, had some plans with her friend, and she wanted to be off, and she asked me would I trade with her, and I told her, yeah, I would do that. And of all the nurses that, that work with Miss Libby, is that fairly common? If someone has a conflict, you can call them to try to arrange some sort of change yeah. in schedule? All right, so you were off on June 7th, but you would have been working what hours? If I had been there, I would have been working. At that time, we were working from, that was on a Saturday, I think, or Sunday. We were working from 3 p until, you know, 3 in the afternoon until 9 the next morning. Did you know um, Maggie Murdoch? Briefly. I didn't. I met her. I had seen her several times at the Murdoch house, but personally know her, no. Did you get to know Paul Murdoch? Yes, I did. Okay. And how did you get to know him? Well, he came to see his grandparents, Mr. Randolph and Miss Libby. Did he come more often than perhaps others? Yes, he did. All right. Well, tell us a little bit about him. Well, he was always very polite. He always um, offered to help do things for Randolph and Miss Libby. He would like, you know, Miss Libby liked ice cream. So he would always say, Miss M, Grandma M, because that's what they called her. Would you like me to get you some ice cream? And she would usually say, yeah, because that, that was her thing. And he would say, get it for her, and he would tease her about it. But he always give it to her. Alex Murdoch appears to become emotional and hangs his head as Fernandez continues. So he came around a little more than perhaps any of the other of the grandchildren. grandchildren. Yes. Um, did you get to know Mr. Alex Murdoch? I do. All right. Is he here today? Yes, he is. Right there. In the blue jacket? The blue jacket and blue shirt. On your shift, from the normal shift, 8, 8 p.m. to 8 a.m., how often would you say Mr. Alex stopped by in those years that you've been there? Not very often, not during that time period. Um, six or seven times, maybe. In, that, in the five years you've been there, the six or seven time? Yes, sir. And you mentioned Mr. Randolph. Who was he again? He was Miss Libby's husband. Did you take care of him? Was he a client of yours? Well, uh, he was not my patient. 
but I helped him. I assisted him when he needed help. Was there a point in time when his health became fairly poor and that you decided he needed some help? Yes, there was. And if you were there, would you provide that assistance to him, whatever he needed? I did. Was there ever a time when Mr. Rand and, and Mr. Randolph, do you know when he passed away? Yeah, um, June the 10th. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Prosecutor Fernandez continues his direct examination by asking Ms. Rast about her observations of Alex Murdoch in the days before and after the murders. So shortly after the, the murders of Maggie and Polk? Correct. Before he, he passed, was there uh, ever a time when the defendant came over later at night? Not late at night. Well, yes, there was. It was on the um, 6th, I think it was. The night before Maggie and Paul, I was there that night, and he and Miss Maggie came. They brought donuts. Okay. Why would they bring donuts? Because Mr. Randolph had asked for some donuts. And you like donuts? Well, they were Krispy Kreme, and um, you couldn't get them at the time in our area. So Mr. Randolph liked Krispy Kreme. Yes, he did. All right. Was Mr. Randolph, was he awake, though, when they came there? No, he was not. And, and uh, did he ever actually see Alex and Maggie? Not to my knowledge. Alex did go to the room and look in at him, but he was asleep, and they chose not to wake him. I told him they could, but they said, no, let him sleep if you can. And uh, how, what did, how did he react when he got up and you told him that they visited? He was, um, he said, they came tonight, and I said, yes, sir. And he said, that's strange. I said, well, you asked for these donuts, and Miss Maggie brought these donuts to you. And he says, well, is there a raspberry one? And I said, yeah. And I got it for him, and he ate a little bit of it, and then he said, I just can't eat the rest. So he thought it was strange that they came that time of night? Yeah, he was surprised. Was there anything um, that, I know Mr. Randolph was very sick, but was there anything that was going on with his mental faculties? No, he was, he knew what was going on right up to the last time I spoke to him, which was the day before he died. Tell us a little bit in your experience with uh, treating Alzheimer's patients, people with um, d declining uh, dementia. They, Tell us a little bit about your experiences with them and how they, maybe at night, how they rest and what the what your you know treat, treating them well, involves. Anytime they, they, I mean, sometimes they're fine with whatever goes on around them. They just ignore it, or they they speak out in the beginning and say what they want to say. Sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes it don't. Um, as it progresses, they get more like a baby. You know, if you wake them, sometimes they'll go back to sleep. Sometimes they cry. It takes time to calm them and, you know, just guess because you really don't know. Like a baby, you don't know what's wrong. You, they might be hungry. They might want something to drink. They might just want to be turned. Whatever the situation is, you just have to guess and keep trying until you get it right. And what's, uh, what time do you put Miss Libby in bed? Generally at 8 o'clock. But now she don't get out of bed. She has a total care. She stays in bed 
we give her her night medication at 8 o'clock, which helps her to rest along with other medications she has to have. If, if Ms. Libby does go to sleep, what, what would you prefer as her, as her provider, health care provider? To let her sleep, but if a family comes by and they say they want to wake her, I don't object. I let them wake her. With that, David Fernandez concludes his direct examination of Ms. Rast. Defense attorney Dick Harpoodlian rises to begin his cross-examination of the witness. My name's Dick Harpoodlian. Can you read my lips? Dick I mean, yeah, I think so. Okay. And uh, I represent Alex. Okay. Yeah. Now, let me just focus in on, I guess, the reason you're being called here today. You were asked by the state, was it strange for them to show up um, that Sunday night at late. It was unusual. That was the word you used, not strange. And that's the word you used in your statement you gave about 10 days after the murders to Sweat. Isn't that right? That's correct. Um, did you know they'd been to a ball game in Columbia before they stopped by? Did they? Did Mr. Murdoch no, sir. I did not know that. Okay. Um, and if Mr. Murdoch, Alec, had stopped by normally during the daytime, you wouldn't have been there, correct? That's correct. Okay. And Alex and Maggie, that Sunday night, stayed about 30 minutes? Approximately 30 minutes, yes. Brought the, brought, it was late? It was late. And How late do you think it was, like 11 o'clock? I think it was closer to 9. Okay, 9. Um, it hadn't been long put Miss Libby to bed, and she was starting to doze, and Mr. Randolph was already asleep. Um, and Miss Libby, um, at let's say two, three years ago in 2021. Um, what was her state? She has dementia. Is that she correct? does have dementia? Well, all harmless dementia. It is basically the same thing. Okay. It affects the body in the same way. Um, at that time, she could not walk, but we could pick her up and put her in the wheelchair, pivot her, and take her and put her in the bed, and she could feed herself. But now. She is deteriorated, and she can't feed herself. She can't even give herself a drink of water. Mentally, did she recognize her sons when they came to see her? Sometimes, sometimes not. And has that gotten progressively worse? That is how it works. Was she aware of the fact that her husband of, I think, 40 years um, had died, Mr. Randolph? Um, we told her. We took her to the funeral. But... Um, Within a couple of weeks, she doesn't, you know, it didn't seem to recognize the fact. That for about, a, I say, a month, she would call for him from time to time, and then now she doesn't. When Paul, while you were there, when Paul or some other family member would come over, would that calm her down? Um, sometimes. Paul had a way of having a calming effect on her. He, he, he would always remind her of the past. You know, like, Grandma, you, know, you remember that whip you gave me with that fly swat? Things like that. And did, did she watch television a good bit? She still does, but she doesn't. She used to would play along with the games, but by 21, she wasn't doing that. She was just watching. No further questions. Thank you, further. Thank you ma'am. You may step down. After Ms. Rast is excused, the state calls their next witness, Matthew Wilde, who appears to be in his 40s and sports black hair. He wears a black suit, a white dress shirt, and a gray and blue striped tie. John Conrad handles the questioning for the prosecution. 
he begins by asking the witness about his vocation. Matthew Wilde states that he is a supervisory special agent with the FBI, specializing in cellular analysis. He supervises a team focused on analyzing phone records, and specifically the location data associated with them. Agent Wilde also tells John Conrad about some of his extensive training in the field, and that he has been qualified as an expert witness in court over 130 times before. After Judge Newman qualifies Agent Wilde as an expert, John Conrad continues his direct examination of the witness. All right. In your role as a casting advisor, you became involved in this case, is that correct? Yes, sir. All right. And you recall approximately when uh, you became involved I and how? I believe, so I wasn't a supervisor at the time, I was just a, I was a, a regular agent, but I was asked in uh, either late, it was, had to be in July of 2021 to provide some assistance in this case. Okay. Uh, and asked by who? Uh, I believe it was Dylan Hightower. Okay. All right. And specifically, at least in July of, of 2021, what did he ask uh, your assistance for? Well, he had obtained uh, a few sets of call detail records on some of the phones in this case. And there was a question as to whether or not where um, there was a 911 call that was made, and the tower that was using that 911 that was the tower that was used to handle that 911 call. Um, There's a question as to whether or not that tower could provide coverage uh, up to Mozo. Okay, and so there was a question about why the 911 call first bounced off a tower in Hampton That's correct. County, correct? Yes, sir. And uh, Moselle, to your knowledge, uh, is in what county? Um, I think it's in Dorchester County. Uh, or could it be Colleton County? Uh, Call, I'm sorry, Colleton County, yes. Uh, and you're asked, your assistance was asked to help figure out if that was possible, someone could be a Moselle and a call could bounce off the Tower of Hampton. Yes. Sir. And uh, in the cast team, does it have tools uh, that can assist uh, in figuring that out? Yeah, we have something called the Gladiator Autonomous Receiver. Um, and it's basically a box that we can put in our car. It's a computer and it has a couple of receivers in it. Um, and as we drive around, that box maps out the latitude and longitude, so like where we are with the box, and then it measures all the signals from the cell towers that the, um, that the box can see in its area. It's very much like the old Verizon, can you hear me now commercial. It's just doing that hundreds of times a minute. It's just constantly doing that as we drive around. And, and just to simplify that a little bit, it would be fair to say that what you, this tool can do is help you map specifically where self co cell coverage exists and where it doesn't. Is That's that correct. Okay. All right. And uh, as you uh, move forward, did you go ahead and conduct that test? I did. Um, myself, uh, as well as um, Dylan Hightower and another agent with the FBI, uh, we grabbed three of those pieces of equipment, three cars. We put them in three cars. And over two days in the beginning of August, we basically drove everywhere all around Moselle, all the way down to Hampton, all the way up to, um, I believe it's Earhart, and over to 95. Did you also go on a property at Moselle to, to take these measurements? I personally did, yes, sir. Okay. Uh, afterwards, uh, were you asked to uh, prepare a report uh, and to take uh, cell, all these cell records in and prepare a report uh, and provide this report to show locations of various phones involved in this case? Yes, it was. Okay. I'm going to show you what's been marked as State's Exhibit 458. Let's have you take a look at it and see if you recognize it. John Conrad hands Agent Wild a document. Yeah, this is the report that I generated for this case. All right. And when you say generated, 
Uh, what kind of information did you take in to help you generate that report? Well, so I had to take in the cell phone records, so the records that were received from Verizon. I had to take those in. I had to also uh, take in this, uh, the Cellbrite downloads that came from uh, one of the phones. And then um, I also had to, after we did the drive test, uh, create some maps to kind of show and display that data. Okay, and for this report specifically, there's a couple of numbers that we don't want read, but uh, whose records did you look at? And for uh, Maggie, Paul, and Alice, you can read their numbers. But whose Verizon records did you look at? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear the end of your question. I'm sorry. Whose Verizon records did you look at? Oh, I looked at Alex's, uh, Paul's, Maggie's, um, and then there's um, Marty Cook and CB Rowe. Okay. Uh, and did you uh, prepare a report showing locations off of towers uh, where those various phones were on the days and uh, of and surrounding the murder? Yeah, I showed the general area where the phones were on the days surrounding the murder. With that, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Alex Murdoch. Please join us on our next installment as we continue our look at the testimony of FBI Special Agent Matthew Wild. Also check out the Crime Story Podcast Night Raid wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced, written, and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.